Heavenly Father, we do lift up Gary and Tracy, and we ask that you would protect them, surround them with your presence, that this time would be restful for them, that they would be strengthened. Lord, we do ask you to speak to Gary, as you often do while he is on sabbatical, that you would give him a word for us. And Lord, as we do get into your word today, I ask uh, that you would put your words in my mouth. And Lord, because we don't want to hear from a mere human being. And I also ask for all uh, who are present that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of their hearts so that what is said will not simply resonate in the intellect, but will engage both the intellect but the heart so that we are changed and live our lives differently uh, as a result. We ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for his great honor and glory. Amen. All right, I want to begin reading this morning from the passage in 1 Kings. Uh, it's beginning in 1 Kings 17, verse 1. I want to read the first nine verses. So that's 1 Kings 17, beginning in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand... Surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I will command the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath which belongs to Zidon, and stay there, and behold, I have commanded a widow there uh, to provide for you. Now, uh, what we have here is uh, Elijah, as I just read, goes into Ahab and makes a statement to him. Now, Ahab is the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, the northern kingdom rebelled against Rehoboam, who was the son of, Jerob, of um, Solomon. And when they asked Rehoboam to ease up on them, he wouldn't do it. So ten tribes broke away and formed what we now call the northern kingdom. Uh, uh, Ahab was one of those kings. In fact, this is probably about a century and a half or two centuries after uh, the northern kingdom uh, broke away. Uh, the kingdom of the northern kingdom of Israel quickly lapsed into idolatry uh, under its first king and became worse and worse and worse as things went on. Ahab, uh, who we all know or is married to a lady named Jezebel, and Ahab and Jezebel uh, brought Israel, the northern kingdom, into the worship of Baal. Now, Baal is the Texas pronunciation. 
my understanding in is probably should be in, uh, in, uh, pronounced Baal, but I get confused with Baal, so it's Baal. But what he did, what the two did, what the pair did, they were absolutely corrupt, uh, and they introduced Israel into the worship of Baal. Now, I, uh, Elijah, who is one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, goes in to Ahab on his throne, and he makes this statement, there will be no rain in Israel uh, in this land until I say so. Now, that was not Elijah's idea. Obviously, the Lord had told him to go and make that statement uh, to Elijah. Uh, and what he is doing here is he is bringing a drought on the northern kingdom. And this drought is a judgment from God. But this judgment from God against the northern kingdom is more than just a judgment. It's more than a, <clears throat> I'm going to get you type thing. It is also what's called a polemic. Now, a polemic is an argument made in regard to a matter in dispute. And what God is doing here is he is making an argument, and his argument is with Baal. And the reason he's doing this and the way in which this argument is being revealed is that Baal is the god of rain as well as fertility. So God is saying to Baal, I am bringing a drought. What are you going to do about it? And the purpose of this polemic, this argument with Baal, is to show Israel you are worshiping the wrong god. On top of that, you are worshiping a worthless God. You are worshiping somebody who's not, or something who is not uh, a God of all at all. So what we have here is a similar thing in Egypt as well. You have this polemic to northern Israel or the northern kingdom. We also saw the same thing with regard to Moses in the land of Egypt. The plagues that God brought on the Egyptians uh, and there were 10 of them. Each of those plagues were aimed at a particular god uh, that the Egyptians uh, worshipped. Uh, for example, uh, the Egyptians worshipped frogs. In fact, the reason they did is they believed that the goddess Hokti uh, was a dwelt in frogs, and she was the goddess who helped women in childbirth. So God says to Egypt, you like frogs? I'll give you frogs. Um, if you want to see just how bad the frogs were, turn to Exodus 8, beginning in about verse 2. Now, I'm not going to do that. But the point is this. God is trying to show the Egyptians that these gods that they are, uh, are worshiping uh, are false gods, and he is the same time revealing to them who he is, the true God. The gods they are worshiping are not gods at all, and they are absolutely incapable of doing anything about the supposed areas over which they rule, in, the, in this case, frogs. Now, why is God doing that? Because, number one, he loves the Jews, and his, his determination and purpose is to free the Jews uh, from the Egyptian slavery that they've been held in. But secondly, he loves the Egyptians. 
And that's why he's trying to get the Egyptians uh, to understand that they are worshiping false gods. In fact, I, many years ago, I had lunch with a rabbinical student uh, one time, and we had quite an interesting talk about uh, Moses in Egypt. And he told me that, in fact, these plagues against the Egyptian gods had an impact on many of the Egyptians. So that by the time the 10th plague came, and the 10th plague was the plague where the angel of death would pass over their houses, and the, if the blood of the lamb was not applied to the doorpost of, of the home, then the firstborn in that home died, including Pharaoh's uh, prince, his, his oldest son. What the rabbinical student told me is by the time of the 10th plague, many of the Egyptians had come to realize that Yahweh was the true God. And so when that 10th plague, before it came, many of the Egyptians placed their children, their firstborn, in the homes of the Jewish people, and they too were saved. Because what it tells you is this. The angel of death passed over. He didn't pay any attention to whether there was a Jew in the house or a Gentile. He didn't pay any attention to whether or not it was a good Jew or a bad Jew, a good Gentile or a bad Jew. If the blood had been applied, he passed over, which is exactly what the gospel is for us. Uh, now, of course, for us in Christ, because his blood, we are washed in his blood, and we are covered, and we are free from spiritual death. But what he's trying to do is bring as many people to the knowledge of himself uh, as he can, and he is doing this using his judgments. Now, this is an important thing to understand. God's judgments primarily are redemptive in purpose. His judgments are not brought just to get even with people or to give people a hard time. His judgments are redemptive. He is wanting them to begin to turn back to him. Uh, and so that's why he brings the judgments uh, that he does. Now, interestingly enough, uh, in, um, in the one against Ahab, or let me mention this real quick. Leviticus 26, uh, and I'm not, again, we're not going to turn to this. We're not going to read it. It's too long, but Leviticus 26, beginning in verse 14, down to about verse 33 or 34, God has a five-point disciplinary program, five levels of judgment that he brings against, in this case, Israel. They're told this will happen if you turn from me. And the first level of judgments are the mildest. Then it says, if you don't turn back to me, the next set of judgments, level two, will be seven times worse. And if that doesn't get your attention, level three will be seven times worse than level two. And if you still keep going toward the, away from me and turning on away from me, then level four will be seven times worse. And if that still doesn't get you attention, level five will be permanent. Level five, you will be uh, wiped out and you will be scattered among the other nations. Now, in, historically, I have seen those levels of judgments being applied against other nations, but specifically, it's here with regard to Israel. And the first four judgments, the purpose of them is redemptive. It is to bring them back into repentance, to restore their relationship 
with God. Israel, incidentally, is the only nation that has lived to go through all five judgments and come back to tell about it. And it's happened to them twice. Other nations, when they hit level five, you never hear from them uh, again. God does not judge nations in the day of final judgment. That's people. God judges nations in this time-space continuum. So incidentally, that's what I was starting to do is move back to 1 Kings 17. Uh, and that is Ahab um, is um, told by God after he delivers the message, he's told by God uh, to go to the brook Cherith and he would take care of him and feed him. Uh, we see that ravens were bringing meat and bread every morning and evening. Now, I suppose you could say his food was being airlifted into him, uh, or you could call it uh, wings on, uh, meals on wings. Um, but what God is doing is understand that for Israel, for the northern kingdom, which is an agrarian nation, a drought is a major economic disaster. And so God is protecting his guy, his man, his prophet, he's protecting him in the middle of this economic disaster. He is providing supernaturally for Elijah. Uh, one of the things that you notice in the passage that I read is that the drought had an impact on the brook Cherith, and it began to dry up. Now, if it hadn't, if it had miraculously remained the same as it had always been, Ahab, who by now is desperately trying to get his hands on Elijah, would have figured out where he was because that's the only place that isn't drying up. But notice, and, I, and this is by implication, Elijah knows that God knows that the creek is drying up. Elijah knows that until the creek dries up, he doesn't need to worry that when it's dried, God will tell him where to go and what to do next. Okay, he does. He sends him to Zidon, which incidentally is Jezebel's hometown. That's the last place Ahab would have looked for him. But he sends him to Zidon uh, and begins to take care of him there. Right now, folks, we are in economic difficulties. Uh, the COVID-19 has had a major impact on our economics. Many people are out of work. Many people are not able to make income. I want to uh, work for income. I want to suggest to you folks that God is prepared to take care of you. And it is also, he'll do that miraculously, but he'll do it with other believers and through churches. And he is prepared uh, to take care of you. So it does you no good to, uh, you know, wring your hands. And as you watch the creek drying up, your creek ain't dry. Is that good grammar? <laughs> your creek's not dry yet. He'll provide when it's dry. He knows what's happening. He is in absolute control of everything going on right now. Now, I can give you an example. I've been, I've been walking with the Lord for 52 years. And I have constantly seen him provide when I had nowhere to go to get something, you know, where I could provide for myself. He has always been the one that has provided. About 25 years ago, I left the law firm I was in, 
and went out on my own. The only problem with that was all the work I had done the month before from which you generate your income to function in the new month that's coming was with that firm. So I had nothing to come in for the first month. I was standing there looking at a zero income month. And, the and I had to pay the rent to the new place. They wanted their rent. They were very nice about it, but firm. First day I was in the office, I get a telephone call. It's from a law firm in Dallas. Talked to a paralegal. She says, uh, several years ago, you referred a client to us uh, who had been severely injured in personal injury case. We have now settled his case and uh, we give referral fees to the lawyer that sends the one um, who refers them to us. Will $12,000 be enough Yeah, and he's done that over and over and over, and I'm not special in his eyes any more than you are. So for the believer, this is not a time to be afraid. This is a time to learn to trust if you haven't done so before. Now is the opportunity uh, to do exactly that. Let's talk a little bit about the United States, and let's bring 1 Kings 17 to the current, where we are now. and. The, the problem we've got is, is that America at one time was a godly nation. Godly in the sense that it was largely controlled by a Judeo-Christian consensus. Not everybody in those days was a believer. And certainly we had serious problems. Slavery was a serious uh, sin. There was no excuse for it. We mistreated the Indians many times uh, down not only in 1776, but down through the centuries that followed. There was no excuse for that. It was absolutely corrupt. But no nation is perfect, and I'm not making an excuse for the United States, but I will say that our founders were largely godly people. Now, for an example, the, even the non-Christians were somewhat controlled by Christian principles. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was not a Christian. Uh, my understanding was he's a deist. But Franklin, after the Constitution was uh, ratified and written, wrote to a friend and said, I am, he didn't use the word excited, that's our word, but let me just use it. He has basically said, I am excited to see a government functioning on biblical principles. In 1789, after Washington was sworn in for his first term and all of Congress was sworn in because it was their first term, it was the first Congress, they were in New York City, Washington DC hadn't been built, they were in New York City, they went down to a church where they dedicated the nation to the Lord God, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they made a covenant with him to follow him. We have abandoned that covenant. Um, the change began in the 1860s when the uh, Origin of the Species was published in 1859. Harvard University adopted the evolutionary theory of Darwin and applied it to social history and to law. Uh, by 1914, uh, all of the great big universities of the United States had adopted. 
So now we have evolutionary theory being taught not just in science, but in social, social studies, law, etc. Prior to 1869, we were a godly nation when it came to the law. Uh, in fact, the early judges and lawyers of the 18th century and up to the first half of the 19th century were largely circuit riders. Uh, and they rode from town to town. They had two saddlebags on the back of their horses, and in those saddlebags they had two volumes, volume one and volume two, of Blackstone commentaries on the English common law, and they had each saddlebag had a volume of Blackstone, and American law was largely based on the writings of Blackstone. And the foreword of Blackstone says this, all law, whether statutorily enacted or judicially determined, must of necessity be based on the principles of Holy Scripture. That was our law. Now, I will say this to you folks. Um, I am was born in the 1940s. A lot of you have probably figured that out. But the significance of that is this, and many of you are in my boat and a lot of you are not. The significance of that is that I grew up in the 50s and the 60s. And I wanna tell you that I was born in a nation that does not exist for the most part anymore. It has totally changed and I have watched the change. And so I want us to look at Romans 1.18 because this is the pattern of the change that I have observed. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, first of all, notice this. The wrath of God is revealed not against men, but against the godliness, godlessness and unrighteousness of men. And it's written in the way Paul has written this is a pattern. And the first always becomes before the second. Godlessness always comes before unrighteousness. Godlessness occurs when we turn our backs on God. Okay, that's the vertical relationship. When we have done that, what happens is unrighteousness springs up among men and women. So we begin to deal with each other in an unrighteous manner. First, vertically, godlessness, then horizontally, unrighteousness. And Paul then goes on to say that it has been suppressed on purpose um, by the unrighteousness of men. And then when you pick up with 19, uh, down to the end of chapter 1 of Romans 1, 19 and 20 will say, they have no excuse because they know exactly who I am. They can look in the sky and see who I am. Look at, uh, take a look sometime at Psalms 19.1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Not only do they know who I am from the outward appearance of the creation, but I have put it within them to know who I am. But beginning in verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools 
and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So what he's doing here in the rest of Romans 1 is he is now following that pattern of godlessness first followed by unrighteousness. Godlessness in those verses I just read because we have turned our backs on him. Now, mankind in general has done that. But I want to suggest to you that our nation has also done that since the intervening years of 1789. Now, notice then what he does in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts uh, to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So now notice when it says God gave them over, now we pick up with the development of godliness, now run righteousness. What does it mean when it says that God gave them over? It means that he has withdrawn his restraining influence that holds unrighteousness in check. Everybody with me? Now, we're going to see, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time in Romans 1, so don't misunderstand me here. But what we're going to see is he is going to withdraw uh, his, right, his restraining influence. He's going to give them over three times. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. And every time he gives them over, things get even worse. In verse 24, it's sexual impurity, for example, and, and various aspects of immorality. He gives them over again in 26, and now what have we got? Well, 20, uh, says, therefore he gave them over. Uh, 26, for this reason God gave them over, because, they were con because of their unrighteousness. He gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged natural function uh, for that of the unnatural. And the same also for men, they abandoned the natural function and burned with desire for other men. So now we go from one level of giving over to a lower level of giving over, now sexual perversion. And this is just an example of it. There's far broader than that. And then notice in 28, and keep this in mind, folks, and the enemy will fool you in this way in, in the flesh. There is no such thing as a little bit of sin. The devil will say, well, this is okay. It's just this little thing, this one little time. Right. No, he builds a wall because the next one little time, you won't remember the last one little time, and it gets worse and worse and worse and deeper and deeper as you go along. So you notice in verse 28, and thus, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things, those things which are not proper. What do we mean by depraved mind? Depraved mind means that they no longer have the ability to determine good for evil. So it comes to the point that what is good they call evil, and what is evil they call good. Sound familiar? Hmm? Okay. And here's a description of what happens. Verse 29, being filled with all the unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, uh, 
dis disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, I can tell you from growing up in the 50s, and I didn't realize this, obviously, at the time I was growing up, this pattern that's in Romans 1. But now I can look back on it, and I can see that we started up here, and we have gone all the way down here because God has been giving us over. When I was growing up in the 50s, in the early 60s, nobody heard of somebody going in with an automatic rifle and blowing away a room full of children, or people in a movie theater, or people watching some show uh, out in an outdoor coliseum. That, that didn't happen. We, that was unthinkable. Uh, but now we have deteriorated into absolute sexual, sexual perversity, we have deteriorated into violence and murder. We have murdered 60 million children in the womb. We have done all kinds of things just since I was growing up in the 50s. At the same time, prayer in the schools are no longer allowed. Anything religious is being shut down from the uh, public domain. Uh, it's okay right now you want to worship in church, but don't do it outside. Everybody with me? Okay. The answer to violence is not removing guns. It's dealing with what's coming, going on here. The prophets uh, in the Old Testament, like Isaiah, were generally called to go in, among other things. They had several purposes, but one of them was to connect the dots for the people. Because once you're, once you're lost in sin, you're spiritually blind. And if, for example, you go look at Isaiah 1, that is what Isaiah is doing. He is, he is connecting the dots for the people. He says over here, you're doing this. I, well, he's saying this, 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 and this has happened to you. And he's listing one judgment and catastrophe after another. And then when he finishes that, he's saying that's because you have done this, 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 and this. And he lists the ways in which they have turned their backs on God and gone into idolatry. All right? Let's get really current. COVID-19. I want to be, be bold about this. I believe this is from God. Now, we can blame the Chinese, and we can do all this, that, and the other. That may be where it started, but I believe it's from God. I believe it is a judgment not just against America. I believe it is God's judgment against a rebellious world. And it is a polemic. Who are our gods? Not him. Who are our gods? Us. We worship science, technology. We worship our intellect. We think we have, through science and technology, control of things. God is saying, you think you have control? Try this. It's not that he is trying to harm us. It is he is trying to get our attention. You do not have control any more than Baal could control the rain. 
You do not have control of the economy. You do not have control of your own lives. You are subject to my control. I control everything. And let me say to you that the chaos that you see, the violence that you see, don't put your eyes on that. Put your eyes on the one who has control. What is he doing? Ultimately, what he is doing is he is bringing the kingdom of his son to revelation. But in the interim, what is he doing? I want to suggest this to you. That um, Well, let me just mention one other, uh, what I would call a polemic. And that is... Um, Oh, I forgot one other thing. Talking about all this stuff in Romans 18. Why is he doing this? Why is he turning people over to their own desires? He's doing it out of kindness. He wants us to repent. God's wrath is, brought, is ex exercised out of kindness. It's out of his love and his kindness to bring us to a knowledge of himself. Uh, in fact, Romans 2, 4 says that. Or do you think it lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That's why C.S. Lewis refers, in a sense, to the kindness of God through judgment. His judgments are redemptive in purpose, and they are exercised out of kindness to us. That's why C.S. Lewis calls it a severe mercy. And I think he's right on. I think it is. But let me just share this with you. The eye-opener that I think he wants the church to have um, is from the violence of the mobs that are sweeping across the nation uh, and the... And the um, Lawlessness, I think he's saying to the church, you better wake up. Because the violence and the mobs that are going are not about racism. They're about the destruction. The people who were the vicious killing of George Floyd, the people who were genuinely concerned about the racism were peaceful protesters. These folks are using that as an excuse, and they are aiming at the destruction, not simply of the nation. They are aiming at the destruction of the church. Now, I say they. They may not consciously understand that, but Satan, who is behind this, understands it very well. He's more interested in the destruction of the church. This is a message to us to wake up. I'm afraid a large portion of the church is still asleep. It's business as usual. We're not having problems here, so that's there, and it's business as usual. We have to wake up, and he is trying to wake us up. It's part of his kindness and his love toward us. I read of a black police officer speaking to a white female woman protester. And this black police officer made this statement. Lady, racism is neither the result of white or black. It is the result of sin. And the world's problems are the result of sin. 
Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not following him is the cause of all these problems. I wanted to hug him. <laughs> now, there is a brother who's got two qualities, great ins insight and courage. Um, he is absolutely right. But let me suggest this to you. Now, I'll go this far with you. I think all you're seeing, now underline the words, I think. I am not standing here as Elijah and saying, thus saith the Lord. But the pattern, based on what we've been talking about in the Old Testament, is blatantly clear, I think. God is preparing for revival. He is preparing the ground for exactly that, but he has got to get the attention of the church. And that's the benefit of the one who is in control. Now, the, the great thing is this, he is in control, and even though the devil will attack, he will actually use the devil to further the gospel against his own will, against the devil's own will. But two things are involved in revival. First of all, what do I mean by revival? By revival, I mean the outpouring of the power of God in such extraordinary and miraculous way that there is no question that it is from God and not men. It is not a campaign. It's not a guest preacher coming in and preaching for several weeks. It is the supernatural outpouring of the power of God and we're simply the instruments that he uses, but he doesn't use just us. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes down even on people who are not believers. In the 1857-1858 revival in New York City, they were saying that the power of God, the uh, Holy Spirit, was like a curtain in the Atlantic that dropped down into as far out as the Atlantic, and when ships passed under the, quote, curtain, whole crews fell down and confessed their sins and repented. That's revival, folks. That's the power of God. And it's not going to happen before two things come about. One is the purity of the church. He is not going to use a dirty church to accomplish his purposes. And I think this revival is not limited to America. Again, this is my opinion. I think it's going to be worldwide. I, th I think that's where we're going. But the church is going to have to repent. Let's look first because, folks, let's face it. Even in the evangelical church, uh, there is immorality. There is all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, we have been invaded by the world, and we don't even know how much we have. And we are in need of God showing us. Psalm 1912, uh, who can determine his hidden faults? Uh, Psalm 139:23, search my heart, O God, and let me know if there's any unclean thing in me. We have to start doing that, not just as a church, but as individuals. I ask God to show me what's in my heart, and uh, he starts doing it, and I sometimes want to say, stay your hand, <laughs> because none of us are perfect. 
uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of uh, the throne of God. But in other words, we get rid of every encumbrance and sin that so easily entangles us. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'll bet a bunch of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about, about me. All right, Romans 13. Romans 13, 11. Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost done, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to lusts. That's going to have to happen before revival occurs. And God is perfectly capable of bringing that to pass. So often when the Holy Spirit does fall, people find themselves face down in the church. Uh, they've gotten a glimpse of God's glory and a glimpse of themselves, and they're on their faces repenting. It's the same thing that Isaiah had when he saw God holy and lifted up uh, in the sanctuary. Uh, it was exactly... Uh, the same thing. Now, let me just say this. What kind of prayer do we have to have? It needs to be urgent, fervent, pleading, and seeking after the power of God. And it needs to be consistently and constant. It can't be now and then, bring revival. Lord, I just ask you for a little revival. And it's got to be ongoing. It's got to be urgent. It's only urgent when you realize things are desperate. That's why he's trying to wake you up. Anybody asleep? Okay. That's good because I had all the seats wired. Now, let me suggest this, and I've got to quit. I'm, I'm almost done. But Histories of revival show, and it starts with Acts uh, 21, and when the power of God comes down, like revival does, the world looks at it and says, what is this? It's, they realize it's not us. They look at us and they say, what is this? At Pentecost, when Peter stood up to, to preach, after, you know, when they came out speaking in tongues, the people said, what is this? Okay, that's what we're talking about here. Um, Every revival is preceded by constant, fervent prayer uh, for him to bring that, uh, often by various intercessors. Uh, and I want us to turn to Isaiah 62, and this is verse 6. Incidentally, if you want to know a good prayer for revival, start with Isaiah 63, verse 15. 
He begins and he confesses the problems and the sins of the people. And then he begins to cry out for, to God, and it runs all the way through Isaiah 64. And at the beginning of Isaiah 64, he says, Oh God, rend the heavens and come down. That's a prayer for revival. Uh, shake the mountains, you know, read it. Go home and read Isaiah 63, 15, and Isaiah, through Isaiah 64. Isaiah 62, verse 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves. Now, that's the context of Israel with a walled city and guards on the wall. What would the context be for us? The watchman on the wall would be us. In particular, the watchman on the wall would be intercessors in, in particular, but all of us. How many of you are intercessors? Okay. We want to ask God to raise up more intercessors because they're often the people that God speaks to. When God gets ready to do, uh, bring a revival, he starts raising up people he wants to pray. And so we want to start even asking for that. Notice it says, um, all day and all night they will never keep silent. In other words, they will continue uh, to intercede and pray. And then he says uh, in verse 6, uh, take no rest for yourselves. And then 7 is very interesting. And give him, God himself, give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. Okay, until he establishes his kingdom in this world is what we're looking at. Now, I'm going to close, but I, I want to leave you with this just as an encouragement. Oftentimes, I, when I'm preaching up here, I usually close with a call to revival. But I wanted to spend more time on it than just having a, oh, by the way, be sure and pray for revival. I used to study in Southwest Seminary, uh, not as a student, but I would, when I'm teaching Bible studies, I'd, I'd go over there to prepare because they must have eight million commentaries. And on one occasion on their third floor, I found shelf after shelf after shelf of treatises written by graduate students uh, at the uh, uh, Southwest Seminary. And I found one and I started reading it that had to do with the history of revival. And in reading it, I don't know who the graduate student was, but it didn't matter. It became obvious it was the Holy Spirit. And so I'm sitting there reading it, and a student comes up to me and says, we don't see people reading those very often. I said, well, this one was written by the Holy Spirit. And he said, which one is that? And I said, I'm not telling you. This is mine. This is from that book. He has taken his people into partnership with himself, honoring them and binding himself, and made their activity through prayer a measure of the workings of his power. You want to hear it again? He has taken his people into partnership with himself honoring them and binding himself 
and made their activity through prayer a measure of the working of his power. That's what we've been talking about. We need to close. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have absolute control of all the things that are going on in this world. And Lord, nothing is outside of your control, and there is nothing that you have not foreseen. And Lord, I ask that you would raise up intercessors. And Lord, I, not just people who are normally that, but grant us the Holy Ghost urging, if you will, Lord, uh, to cry out to you urgently for the outpouring of your Spirit uh, so that we might see uh, powerful results that only you can produce and not us, that the world may see this and say, what is this? Lord, I ask that this would be worldwide. I ask that you would strengthen the churches in the nations right now that are undergoing persecution, uh, that are in themselves already walking with you in power. I ask you to grant them even greater power and use them in the nations where you have placed them. And Lord, we pray for their protection. We also pray for our protection and for our families. We pray for the whole world for protection from this coronavirus. And Lord, we do ask that you will use this time as a means of awakening the church and bringing them to their knees in order that they might cry out to you and you would hear from heaven and you would rend the heavens and come down and pour your power out upon your people in an extraordinary and supernatural way so that there is no question that it is anybody but you who is doing it. And then I would close in this way, this prayer in this way, Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>